welcome back to Steps to Sobriety. Yes, you heard right. We have changed our name from uh, a different life story to uh, Steps to Sobriety back full circle where this show actually started because uh, a different life story was a beautiful name that meant a lot and into the light is, is what we do. We, we bring hopefully people from the darkness into the light by showing them with my beautiful guests that their transformation is not just possible, but you can expect it if you take the right steps and get the right help. So it all made perfect sense to me, but no one finds us. So therefore, back to steps to sobriety, so that there's at least one anchor point where a lot of people are searching for. Our show will not change. We will talk about the the mental health problems that underlie the the problems that we create for ourselves so let's look at the trauma let's look at those things that really really matter deal with them and then suddenly you come to a life where actually you don't have to numb yourself or try to escape reality so that's where we are and it is amazing it's an amazing journey for me and the the journey is so beautiful because i can bring on all these wonderful guests and today, uh, there is no exception. Uh, I've got Doc Shona Springer. Uh, Doc is, she is a wonderful, wonderful woman who has dedicated her the last 10 years of her life to helping those who protect us. Uh, she is a psychologist working with veterans. Uh, and it is an honor for me to have her today on my show. So welcome to us, Shona. It's, it's really great to have you on my show. Thank you for having me. Oh. When did you start uh, looking to be a psychologist with uh, veterans, working specifically with veterans? I started working with veterans during my internship year, um, which is during my training. And there was just something very different about them for me, um, something that felt like home. I think it's maybe some of the the deeper values that we share in common. Um, in some ways, I was raised in a very military type upbringing. And so things like ser service to others and sacrifice and taking risks um, and trying to be brave in the face of obstacles. These were all things that were very core to my family growing up. And then when I started working with veterans, um, it just felt really comfortable. And I've served all different populations and really, you know, am a free range psychologist. That's the name of my blog on psychology today. So I'm not here for one group or one issue, um, but veterans are core to the work that I do. Hmm. And it's, it's really wonderful to have you on my show because not being a military man myself whilst i subscribe as you to to a lot of the same values it is uh it is still i have not gone physically through basic training i have not gone through the transformation myself that every soldier does and that in turn can either make or break you um ultimately it is such a fundamental change in a young person's being it is it's often blowing me away um so therefore it is it is there's so much there to be said about that uh what was it scary 
to initially work with that. So here you were a younger, uh, a younger psychologist early in your in your race, and you you typically get quite a few type A personalities and people who use aggression to to dominate on the battlefield. That's what they do. As well as as often, you know, they're often enough male. They're often enough physically aggressive within their their group. There's a masculinity going. And here you are as a, as a female psychologist, younger in your thing. What, how, was there a bit of an imposter syndrome or was there, how did your own journey go there? Not fear, but a sense of, do I have what they need to help them heal? I wasn't afraid. I never was afraid because of how I was raised and who I am. I know okay. how to hold my center yeah. with people who have power, who are angry, who are distressed. Um, that's part of who I am. So I don't think I elicited as a woman who had not served in the military. I didn't elicit that sense of competition. I was able to really come alongside my patients as a, a trusted doc once I earned their trust. Um, so no, not fear. Uh, but I did have a sense of, um, you know, because I didn't serve in the military, will I really be able to understand their pain and help them and walk those valleys with them? I certainly had that, and I write about it in my book, Warrior, how it was a pretty rough landing coming into that first job um, where my first patients would say, you know, how old are you? Like, what makes you think you have anything to offer me? You're like 25? Um, you haven't lived, you know, how can you help me with my trauma? Um, so I definitely took a step back and asked myself, can I? help the people I came here to serve if I haven't had the same life experiences and had to go through that painful process of seeking within myself, is there a way I can serve them as I intend to? Was there trauma in your life? Was there trauma in me? Mm. No, just more of a sense of, uh, will I have what they need? Did I come here to serve and support? And will I find that I don't have what they need from, you know, a healer? Um, I think I came to the VA with a very different mindset than a lot of people. Um, and some of the evidence of that is that the fact that I stayed eight years to the day. That was not a coincidence. <laughs> not so, a coincidence. Okay. Yeah, I started yeah. on a particular day. Yeah. And, you know, I was raised in a kind of military way. I decided serving our nation's warfighters was going to be the way I would serve and support. So I decided to go into this system of care for at least four years, a standard enlistment, and then sort of re-enlist. And that mentality was very important because I am not somebody who generally loves being um, subjected to the downsides of a large bureaucracy. It's not a great fit for my personality. Um, I like to really innovate and change and, and look at how we think and, yeah. and be a critical thinker and always press for us to move forward and do it better. Um, and there was some innovation happening for sure. And I had some good leadership um, at times. Um, at other times, it was, it was very challenging. You know, any large system is. This isn't unique to the Veterans Affairs. It's any big hospital system. But by committing myself to serving for four years and then eight years, 
I decided I'm going to stick it out, you know, no matter what happens, no matter um, how tough it is on some weeks, I'm going to stick it out because I think our veterans deserve to have somebody hold that trust Mm -hmm. and not just move from job to job where they are left behind and feel like they have to start all over again. That's a trauma when you've built trust with someone to have to start all over. And I decided I'm not going to do that to my patients. Mm. So my mentality was different. And it meant a lot to me to be able to deliver on that commitment to serve veterans. Mm. And so when I asked myself, can I do this? Can I really be of use to them? That was hard. That was hard. I had a lot of initial struggle with that um, and, and came through it to realize that if we take a certain posture with people, we can be helpful and we can be healers, even if we haven't had the same life experiences. I like the focus on continuation of care and in a more human way that you promised yourself and the soldiers you were looking after that you were there, you stayed there by their side. And this the, the issue of betrayal and the issue of being left behind is such an integral uh, problem of soldiers, both in the setting of the battlefield and the setting of the army, but then also leaving the army, being a being part of this this band of brothers. But suddenly, you you get chewed out and thrown out it must feel for many 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 of them um when it is when it comes to to injuries when you when you think about a soldier who's preparing for a battle mission they go bang 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 bang, and they go train hard and often for weeks months to be in the right physical and mental frame of mind to go there bang there you are kicking indoors and then the next thing is you're lying on a stretcher and then suddenly a complete different story begins, a story for which you were not prepared, a, which, a story that, that puts you very much into a fear of existence, into a state of mind where, you, where suddenly everything that you took for granted is gone. Your physicality, yeah. your masculinity, your all of that. So there are so many things, and that is just one possible scenario regrettably a scenario that has become so common in both Afghanistan and Iraq and other uh, theaters of deployment. So it is, and here you are, you were the constant factor regardless of your age. And that is a beautiful thing, isn't it? It reminds me, what you're talking about reminds me of an article I wrote about the identity change that people go through when they become warriors And the process of becoming a professional athlete is different, but similar in some interesting ways. You know, it becomes a matter of who you are. Your whole life rotates around that axis of being an athlete, of performing. Um, There are some really important differences like professional athletes. uh, We witness their stories. We witness their acts of courage, their, their fortitude. We often don't witness the acts of bravery and courage for people who are deployed far from home. But um, but one similarity to your point is that you can have a sort of a career ending, identity ending injury suddenly in both sports and in the military. Mm-hmm. And um, if that is you know where your identity lies, it's a serious trauma to be pulled out. I worked with many people who understood 
cognitively that they needed to heal their bodies, you know, were missing limbs or were gravely injured in other ways. And yet they yearned to be back on the battlefield. They felt that they had left people behind. They felt they were the cause of the um, abandonment that their brothers and sisters in their military tribe were experiencing. Now it was sort of their own perception. Nobody was saying this to them. In fact, to a person, you know, if they ever reconnected with those folks, they would say, I'm so glad you're healed. And, you know, so glad you took that time to, you know, get well. Um, So it was kind of an internal projection based on that bond of love that they have for each other. Um, And so I think sometimes, you know, when you decide you're going to commit to the work you do, to healing, to a population, it's a form of love. It's not romantic love, um, but it is a form of commitment. And you can decide to do that in advance and decide to be someone who uh, works to earn the trust Mm -hmm. and then does some work with people to really move them from one place to another place. And that's what I did over eight years at at my first uh, intensive clinical job at a Department of Veterans Affairs. Wow. And you will hear stories that make your own mind boggle. How have you dealt with those emotions that inevitably come up in an interview with someone who has gone through a lot. I mean, how do you deal with transference? How do, and guys, if you're listening to that and you think, what the hell is he talking about? Transference is that that uh, a psychologist, a doctor, healthcare professional, or whoever is listening to, to the person who is opening up takes on too much of that grief, of that anger, of that, uh, of those emotions. So it is, it is, it's a bit like a COVID virus uh, for some of us, if we are not careful, that we end up actually very affected by the trauma and by those things that we hear, see, often the betrayal that we witness in some cases. I just did an interview about that this morning for a media source about vicarious trauma. Um, I think um, that's where understanding our boundaries is critical. Mm. I didn't have that experience a lot because I understand where my responsibility ends and where someone else picks up. And because I didn't serve in the military, that was an advantage because Mm. I didn't have a personal trauma history that was similar to my patients, um, I didn't tend to take on their pain as though it were something that reflected on me. I was there as a doc and a healer, and they needed to know that I could hear anything they needed to share and wouldn't react with shock or horror, and that I'd be able to walk them through that valley. And so part of being able to do that was part of my commitment to healing this population. And what that meant was going through a process that was very intentional for myself to take myself through some of those fears and anxieties. Uh, I wrote an article about this, you know, it was going to the morgue and watching an autopsy. Um, It was, you know, exposing myself to graphic videos and things that would kind of help me hold my center. Um, Whatever somebody had to share or whatever story they had to uh, get off their chest. 
And so um, I did that very intentionally. Now, sometimes this is kind of another thing I've, I've written about for psychology today. Sometimes I did very occasionally, maybe five times in 10 years, become tearful with a patient. Um, but they were always patients that trusted me, that I knew well, and we were in such a place of empathy that I just had an involuntary response. Mm. And so when that happened, it was really interesting because I would say, you know, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm just, I'm feeling your pain. I'm seeing it and I'm feeling it and I'm reflecting what you're expressing right now. This is mm. not about me or my situation whatsoever. And because they trusted me, they took that in and they understood that they didn't need to worry about me. And actually, when I talked to all of them at some point later, they said that was a really helpful session for them mm. to feel that deeply understood and that I was willing to come mm. off of the sort of stoic doctor role and mm. really join them mm. from time to time. Um, that that was a memorable critical turning point for some of them was a theme. And so I've written about, you know, not sort of trying to inhibit when we have this involuntary reaction. It's a, a mirroring response if we're really attuned to somebody and they're really in deep pain and it doesn't reflect on us negatively. And it actually might be the most therapeutic thing we could do to just allow it and then explain it in a way that maintains a good boundary. And the last thing is really important, but it is absolutely, yes. Um, being an anesthetist, working on intensive care units where you are part of dying and to be there for the relatives, to share the, the, their emotions and not being this hard-nosed guy. Um, don't get me wrong as you said there are times when you have to be strong for others mm -hmm. when you have to be there for others that is our fundamental role in supporting relatives or supporting others in need but there's also time to actually show your own emotions and maybe have a bit of water in your eyes um, and that is absolutely fine and as you right, say, I mean, got, that's I've had the same experience. You 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 actually yeah. become human for them, and they will never forget that empathy, and they will never yes. forget that you're essentially you showed your true human human self, yep. and that is a wonderful wonderful thing. And if I may, you know, just pose a bit of a challenge. There is for me no separation between being strong and having tearfulness, no separation. Beautiful. The strongest and bravest of us, like the strongest thing I've seen people do is face their pain head on. And so I apply that to myself. And, you know, my friend, uh, Jennifer, Jennifer Tracy talks about this powerful example of being on the way to a funeral and she becomes tearful while she's on the airplane. And she does something similar to what I used to do in therapy and say, don't have to worry about me. You know, I'm in grief. Uh, I just want to sit here and grieve. Mm. And you can be strong and tearful at the same time. Mm. I don't put those in different categories whatsoever. Mm. And so modeling that, because if they trusted me, they know I'm strong. They know what I can be depended on for. So being tearful is a response to pain 
And it's not to me inconsistent with holding your strength at the same time, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense to me. Having said that, it's interesting how how potentially someone who has not been exposed to transformation in themselves, to growth in themselves, um, who is who is living that type A personality, suddenly to hear that, what do you mean? Huh? So is, is it okay for a soldier to cry? And the answer is yes. The answer is bloody well yes. Um, at the right time, uh, at the right in in the right setting, you must cry. And there's this, there's this beautiful story going back to the Falkland War, where the UK and Argentine uh, got uh, into a, a, a quite a brutal war, very short-lived war about some little speck of and then a few thousand sheep in the middle of the Atlantic, and the English were. Uh, there were lots of, of deaths. There were lots of awful things happening there. A lot of trauma was happening. And then suddenly, they've beat the Argentinians, and now let's go home. Now, about half of them ended up on airplanes, flying home within 24 hours. The others basically went back, sailing back on ships. And yep. those guys who went back on the ships, they actually, mm -hmm. they were given uh, complete relaxation time they had to show up you know for the meals and in the morning yeah. parade and then thereafter they were encouraged to grieve to talk to be there and there was an astounding difference in the incidents of yes. PTSD between those guys who flew back and were just thrown back into civilian life versus the other guys who could cry who could decompress who could debrief, do all those things in a trusted setting. And that is yep. such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, fuck, yeah, goosebumps. And it's just, it just shows that if you talk, if you connect, if, if you can be there with your brothers and sisters and actually speak honest about your things, don't dig them down, you know, put earth over it and pretend that it never happened. Bullshit. No, you need to talk. And that is exactly the important bit, uh, one of the key messages that came out of that. And I hear you sort of nodding and saying, yep, yep, yep. You obviously say yes. <laughs> well, it's it's what Jonathan Shea also writes about in Achilles in Vietnam. Mm. He was one of the first pioneers of really talking about moral injuries. Mm. And he wrote this beautiful book called Achilles in Vietnam, where he essentially shared the same concept around the return from World War II, that the people in these you know, ocean vessels that came from far away together in their tribes of people they trusted fared far better than people who were put on a plane and sent straight home. There's a kind of emotional whiplash that happens when you're in one society, an alternate universe with different rules and um, different events. And then you come back into civilian society. It needs to be done really thoughtfully. Um, and so that's why some of my work is really focused on, uh, in my previous book, Beyond the Military, it's focused on the psychological process of uh, really coming through that transition and doing it well. And which is beautiful. Uh, and at this stage, we might as well show your book. Uh, so show us the warrior, please. If, if oh, the, um, the, the warrior is the, the uh, you guys need to start with one book. You can't read two at the same time. So start with 
Warrior, uh, because that is a beautiful book to read. Uh, go for it. Go nuts uh, on uh, and and get to know uh, Shona's work, Shona's thinking. And there's no doubt you will look up the other one then, especially if you are in the military or if you are in a similar scenario um, where you actually um, leave one tribe where you were completely immersed and now suddenly you have to to change your roles um that might be a policeman that might be a doctor actually because i certainly if you would have asked me 10 years ago who are you i said i'm a pain physician yeah no no no, no. who are you yeah i've just told you i'm a pain physician i could only fixate on that that was me my work i mean for christ's sake that was me because i worked 12 hours, 16 hours a day. Um, <laughs> none of this balance rubbish. Uh, no, I was work, 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 work. And uh, yeah, needless to say, it didn't end well. Um, but here I was, there was equally, there was this, this trauma of suddenly then stopping in this, in this line of work and thinking then, well, who are you? And I had no answer. And that was, I was a shell of a man afterwards once i stopped drinking once i stopped uh stopped numbing myself once i stopped distracting myself and actually really truly looked into myself who am i i was an empty shell which was great because i could start painting on this empty canvas i could reinvent myself i, I actually with hindsight it was the biggest blessing i could have had but it took a lot of trauma and it took a lot of realization and a lot of hard work to actually go through that transformation to become the man that Did I Did you today. have any experiences where you tried on something and you thought, no, that's not who I am? <laughs> nope. Yes, actually. <laughs> I'm well, sure, right? I'd love uh, to hear a story or two. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was... That's it was a, like, that's probably pretty interesting. <laughs> okay, a short one. Um, I thought that I... Yeah, what do I do? There was, uh, to a certain degree, I went into rehab. Um, I then uh, was stood down to actually heal before I could become a doctor again. Um, so I was basically for two, three months, there was nothing. So I actually wanted to bond with my children. So my youngest and me became, uh, every every Saturday morning, we went for garage sales. So I drove around and found treasures, etc. And I sort of read, did my garage and into a woodworking, doing something with your hands, etc. And it turns out I'm awful in woodworking. <laughs> so <laughs> yes, I can put a shelf together that reasonably looks nice, but that's about it. Okay, so yeah. if you give me a Dremel and some artful sculpting, oh my god! <laughs> so it was, it was. I tried. I failed, yep. but I failed with a smile. <laughs> it's, yeah. And it's okay. That's absolutely okay. I had recently, I had a, a, a beautiful vet um, on my show, and he was for a long time in, in a PTSD and depression hole, a long time until finally, finally, um, someone said, come on, let's do something. Let's come out with us. We are all in the same freaking boat. Um, you might as well stop the sulking and sort of in a, in a, in a, in a bonding kind of way, say, come on, come along. We play golf. And he said, okay, let's play golf. And 
Uh, yeah, that wasn't really the great thing. He tried other things. Um, that didn't work. And then they did uh, one evening. Hey, they said if we go to a a, a, com- a comedy course, how to do comedy. Needless to say, he's a comedian nowadays. Yeah, <laughs> from <laughs> type A, <laughs> facing machine guns and ending up on the wrong side of the the metal meeting the meat, um, to being a comedian. He would have never known that. So, but he gave himself the, the liberty, the, the, the possibility to explore. And that is what you yeah. were alluding to. Try different right. personalities and see, it's like a new suit. Does it fit you? A new shirt, does it fit you? And you have to say, nah, sorry, <laughs> that's not mine. <laughs> but unless you try. Yeah. Yeah. I am in deep conflict right now, whether I really want to have a dog or whether I just like the idea of a dog. That's my current, there's always this distinction, right? Is it, do you like the image of yourself as a dog owner or do you actually want to deal with the back end of the puppy? Exactly. Um, Exactly right. Right. That's, that, that's what I, I'm that's currently figuring out. So uh, uh. this is an ongoing thing right? for <laughs> exactly. all of us. Exactly. Figuring out, trying exactly. on different lifestyle and uh, uh, that's pursuits. Yeah. <laughs> and it's beautiful. But that is that is how we grow. Because you try things and suddenly you might get joy out of it for two, three months. Then you think, well, actually, no. Now, if that is a puppy, not so good. But if that is your interest in woodworking, that's fine. And now, actually, I've figured out why the hell I was drawn to woodworking. NCIS, Gibbs, you always had this bloody big boat where I always thought, how did you get it into your cellar? More importantly, how will you get it out? But he was always doing woodworking yeah. and the thing. And I loved Gibbs. I loved that, that figure, that, that authority, that calmness. Uh, maybe that was what I was yearning to be. Maybe that, that is where the woodworking game came from. Yeah, <laughs> the essence of Gibbs. Yeah, exactly. Do we find it in woodworking? Or? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. And that is, I mean, that must be such a beautiful journey that you can introduce your, your veterans to. Is that part of it? Is that, is that opening new doors? Is that, is that- It has to be tailored, right? To every different person. That's yeah. what makes the work really fun. And that's why I'm like a devoted free range psychologist that doesn't adhere to any single <laughs> theory or theoretical yeah. orientation. Yeah. Um, because I really prize creativity above formulaic um, responses to people's pain. The the solutions that my patients have come up with are as individual as they are. And some of the most powerful work I've done has been missions that people set for themselves to reclaim who they are and their identity. And they've done a lot of the work when I haven't even been in the same zip code. Um, they've you know flown to different places. So I think it's important to be humble and not take credit for people's growth. And to really facilitate and guide them, mm-hmm. um, which is something I've really gotten into more is sort of like that guidance role. Mm-hmm. Then um, I don't even really see clinical patients anymore. I don't, I don't have the time or bandwidth for it. Um, but I can always, through the things that I develop, um, currently just finished doing something called the Master Guide to Mental Wellness. Mm-hmm. It's primarily for veterans and first responders, but it takes people through my book, Warrior, and through a friend's book with little um, videos and and short um, 
worksheets and take-home points and journaling and questions to drive further insight and then things that you can do to take action. And so that's about that orientation towards guiding people to find the thing that works for them because it is individual. It's very individual. And that is so beautiful. That is so powerful, that growth. And that I need to again stress to anyone listening here, that growth is inevitable if you let yourself and if you ask yourself to write questions. Uh, if you ask yourself, why me? Why me? Why me? Guess what? Your brain will come up with about 20 reasons why you. So regrettably, our, not regrettably, beautifully, uh, the brain will give you answers to any question you will ask it. It is, it is trained to do so because that's how you survive. So therefore, if you ask, if you learn how to ask the right questions, it will come up with beautiful solutions for you. It's just the power of words, the power of questions, the power of your direction. That is so important. And the problem is when we are in our darkness, we don't, see the direction for Christ's sake you don't see the light because everything is so hopeless helpless and it can be so brutal and that's that's where someone like you comes in uh, it is uh Shona, without someone by your side it's very hard to move forward there's no two ways around that um if if I mean, how do people connect with you if they if someone was to listen to you and, and was uh, saying, wow, she is a, a really woman who has got her shit together. Um, how can they make how they, can they get hold of you? You mean, if they think I've got my shit together all the time and, and nobody does? <laughs> no, for example, that they want to do your course, that they want to to look at your books so what are your social media handles that they actually can look you up? Oh, okay. Well, that's a much easier question. <laughs> I thought you were asking me, how do they get over the fact that, you know, we're all human? Um, so my um, my recommendation is uh, check out docshaunaspringer.com, D-O-C-S-H-A-U-N-A, Springer, S-P-R-I-N-G-E-R.com. Um, and there's also uh, redefineyourmission.com is where we are directly selling my friend Jennifer and I are directly selling the master guide for mental wellness. If anybody wants to access um, that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, together, like the whole experience is about 40 weeks and people get both journeys, hers and mine. They can take hers first, mine first, whatever calls to them. Because to your point, there is this really important nuance um, with okay, you're in the darkness um, and you don't know which way to go. That's true. It's often really helpful to have somebody that can help you navigate or guide in a sense. But I don't mean guide in terms of being in the driver's seat. I really feel strongly about how patients, and this is part of being a doc, patients need to be empowered. They need to be in the driver's seat. I cannot be running the rickshaw for them. Absolutely. And this may sound harsh, but um, it's very clear to me after the years I've been in practice that I should never work harder than my patient is willing to work for him or herself or not much is going to happen, but spinning our wheels. 
you could have not said it better. Um, it is so important to take the action, and it starts with you taking action, not not find. Okay, so the taking action doesn't mean find a therapist and let him do all the work. Okay, so trauma is something that affects far too many of us and you have to deal with it and you have to deal with it properly head on and you need someone to help you but not someone to do the trauma handling for you so i think that's so important and you need someone to listen to you to hear your words and learn from those words but even more important someone who can listens to you and listens to your silence and listens to those things that you don't say, that you might have not even recognized to yourself. So mm -hmm. therefore, it is so important to actually have that relationship. And guess what? That won't be two hours on a Sunday, and now you've done it, and that's cool. Your trauma is resolved because you've had a two-hour session with someone. Sorry, that won't work. Um, my own journey? Well, my own journey is ongoing. <laughs> that's a fact, because I constantly grow become a better human being and because I've become addicted to improving myself to learning from my fantastic guests to actually go out there and say have get new impressions new 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 things that infuse me and it's absolutely gorgeous gorgeous but you know it is a it is an ongoing journey and my journey the journey of proper healing was probably two years and then I thought, okay, I've done it. And only to find out, yeah, great. And now you peel the next onion layer back and guess what? More pus and more crap. And so you end up, you end up finding new things. So that's the start. You, you, you start healing, you deal with something, and then you think you've done it. And then either something new comes or some old wound breaks open. And that's good. That's beautiful. It gives you a new opportunity to grow. Yeah, you may find this of interest. So you're a pain physician pain. by sort of background. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most promising treatments I've seen for trauma in the past decade was actually pioneered by a pain physician. Um, and it's a fascinating treatment called stellate ganglion block mm -hmm. that involves an injection of an anesthetic medication mm -hmm. into a cluster of nerves in the neck a few inches above the collarbone you'll mm -hmm. know what the stellate ganglion is for sure mm -hmm. um, and it seems to bring people back to a place of calm and so what i've really learned in the past especially a couple of years that's been a real breakthrough kind of realization for me is that for many years i was trying to do trauma treatment when people were in the wrong mind state mm when they were not really with me in the room because they were so overactivated by mm. strong symptoms and had difficulty focusing and concentrating, had these intrusive images, that trauma really is a biological injury that also has behavioral and, and cognitive components. So what I've really come to is just like you would get a knee surgery and then do the physical therapy, the most powerful combination I've seen to treat trauma addresses the biological injury mm. of trauma with a precision medicine treatment like a stellar ganglion block, and then does the work needed, to your point, in therapy to really look at those underlying thinking and behavior patterns and really change those. So it's the fusion of the two that I write about in terms of the new model for how we need to treat trauma. Mm. And I think we need to meaningfully 
collaborate, not just send referrals, but meaningfully collaborate across disciplines. And I've, I've been doing this for years. I'm kind of an early adopter of this and working with these physicians, pain physicians all over the country, 30 clinics now in the past year, and four new clinics in Australia. So we're just rapidly expanding to make this uh, trauma-focused treatment available you know, beyond the mm. U.S. even now. Have you heard about this? Negative. Uh, but although I've, I have really? done quite a few, not, not in the sense a setting of trauma, uh, stellate yeah. ganglion blocks have been around for a long time. For pain. Absolutely. Um, they were in vogue, then went out of vogue, and kept a little bit their role. In, in a nutshell, for those of you who have no idea, um, what you have got here are uh, is basically a very narrow pathway where a lot of important things run through. The stellate ganglion is part of a, of a cluster of nerves where all the adrenaline comes out. So it's a sympathetic yep. nervous system, the fight and flight. Wow. Yes. And actually, it is just here. There's your windpipe and there's some muscles there. In between, you can feel a pulse. So boom, 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 boom. And there are vessels there. And behind there, uh, there is the spine. And sandwiched on the spine is this chain of nerves which we can get access to. So if you know what you're doing and don't try that at home, kids, um, yeah. <laughs> you can put a needle uh, in there. As I said, there are a hell of a lot of other structures. That's what I'm saying. That's someone who actually has done it once or twice. It uh, really, yeah, <laughs> should exactly. be emphasized. A skilled <laughs> and trained physician using ultrasound technology to visualize the vasculature, the veins, the all the structures. Exactly. Um, but... Exactly. Absolutely right. You've probably used it for, um, for the past, CPRS or other that's pain conditions. Exactly, that's exactly right. Um, CRPS? And yes, absolutely. CRPS is a, is a nasty, nasty pain syndrome that affects a typical limb or quarter of a body. And if you actually put local anesthetic there and you will, you will change the way that the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system plays a role there. So absolutely true. Um, it is, unfortunately, it is a temporary effect. And therefore, it has gone out of fashion because those three, four weeks of pain holiday that you can achieve in a CRPS with that injection is really not, in the long run, not worth the risk um, that potentially you undergo. So that was, that was why it came out of fashion. Um, in the management of CRPS. In the past, it was used a lot for the treatment of angina, so chest pain, um, things like that. Again, all, all are problems where the sympathetic nervous system, the, the fight and flight, is completely ramped up and, and yep. is doing far too much. So in pain, it pretty much has gone out, but that is only because then nothing else followed on. In your setting, it makes perfect yeah. sense. Now, but let's go one step back. So what we have got, sympathetic and parasympathetic, these are the two mm -hmm. systems that we want to have in a nice balance. Now with trauma, so sympathetic, mm -hmm. reft up, parasympathetic, uh, <laughs> asleep. Now the problem is you can do something up here to the sympathetic nervous system, and that is where, where maybe medications come in, uh, which we don't really like to do, sort of numbing that, basically sedatives, et cetera. Well, that doesn't help you heal. Um, the other thing is how can we bring that 
up and that down. And that's where the meditation comes in. That's where the breathing exercises come in. All those kind of things, which can bring actually, which can stimulate the vagus nerve down here, um, sorry, down here in your chest, just below your chest, and where that can uh, can help. So that can be an incredibly powerful, powerful way of, of calming down an anxiety attack, for example. Again, short-lived, but anxiety attacks are typically yeah, shorter lift. So the right things for the right, the right setting. What you're talking is not, hey, I feel a bit nervous. Let's do a stellate ganglion block. What no. you are saying, let's do a stellate ganglion block. Give this holiday to the sympathetic nervous system. And it during, gives you a window of opportunity. Correct, correct. And That's the magic your, of this, not the shot. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. That's what I wanted to try to get to. Um, often we get we get focused on this. Oh, the doctor did that wonderful injection. He did that injection. He cured me. Bullshit. No, we just calmed something of you down. Now you need to cure yourself yep. and need to work with yourself. So that is what this yep. is all about. Yeah. Um, so you're but you're fast tracking. And I loved that idea. How long do you see that uh, that? effect working in reality well so okay so for some people years it depends on what they do with that opportunity so i've tracked about 100 patients over mm. the past four or five years since my first case was actually in the va and um if they go into that window of opportunity think about stellate ganglion block as the primer before the paint mm. so you set the conditions and now you go in and you work with a trauma-focused doc who really gets it, and you change the underlying thinking and behaviors, you're going to create a new normal. Mm. Um, so for many of my patients, the effects, they get long-lasting positive outcomes. For those who don't, the common theme is that um, they went right back into a stressful lifestyle, continued using a lot of alcohol um, and other you know, drugs, illicit drugs, um, in this case, I'm referring to. Um, now, I've been getting some, this is anecdotal, to be clear, but some interesting anecdotes from several of them that getting calm, and I wanted to know what you thought about this. Even this morning, um, I had a conversation with someone we treated who's going to be on the next live webinar. We were kind of getting to know each other, and she said, I've stopped drinking because I just don't feel pulled to it. I just don't feel the urge anymore after getting the procedure. It just doesn't taste good to me. And I've heard this from multiple people now. And my only way to kind of put that into a framework is that, you know, we use alcohol and other substances to change our mind state. And when we have targeted the underlying injury and we've calmed the system, then it loses its pull on us. But I really wanted to get your opinion about why that would be, because I keep hearing that the stellate ganglion block gives people not only the window of opportunity to work through trauma, but to stop using addictive substances that had formerly kept them in a kind of bondage. I can very much see how that is happening from just my own experience when you deal mm. with the underlying anxiety, trauma, PTSD, uh, then mm. and you focus on, on, on a positive life, then suddenly there is no more need to escape reality. So that is exactly what you're describing. In a, so that's a, a psychological 
kind of reasoning and, and why that is happening. And certainly true for me. Uh, is there, could there be actually a very biological reason that somehow something changes with the addiction? Oh. Um, potentially, yes. Know. That's right. Without yeah. without now going more into detail, we don't know. But the reality is you are changing your, your uh, hormone makeup by calming yeah. down the sympathetic chain. Adrenaline yeah. is something that makes you fight or flight. Um, mm -hmm. So you're going to keep artificially revved up. And unfortunately, with your, if you have the PTSD, the recurring kind of nightmares, they, well, they don't really help. The intrusive thoughts during the daytime, well, they don't really help. Every time you hear uh, somewhere a loud sound and you go into complete fight and flight, well, that doesn't really help. So by you taking that, that reflex system out, well, yep. that will help. That will change things. So you're basically interrupting a vicious cycle. Yeah. And that is where this, where I can see that very powerful. And I see that as a taking someone off the hamster wheel, a very, very bad yeah. hamster wheel, stop and smell the roses. Literally, actually, how, this is how it feels without that ongoing onslaught of adrenaline and 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 fight and flight hormones and now let's start working yeah. with that so and that and i said i mean from a biological point of view from a pain point of view i would say a stellate ganglion block gives you about a month that would be sort of a realistic thing but if you think through how do you create yeah. habits well by doing little things consistently over a month some people say 40 times, which means 40 days. Ballpark is the same. Um, so therefore, I can very much see how that allows you to fast track recovery because you don't have to teach them. Uh, uh, yeah, techniques. it accelerates it, the whole exactly. process. Exactly. You start like way down the line. And you're really a, a really qualified person to, to kind of speculate on how this might work because you have the background in medicine and in pain. And you also, um, through your uh, recovery process, you know, in terms of thinking about addictions and how those processes work, mm. I, I really haven't posed this question, but I've mm. just noticed that with mm. several of our patients. And when they say to me, um, I, it doesn't taste right. I've just lost the taste for it. That's really interesting. I don't know if there's a biological mechanism, but what's super interesting is that a lot of patients after the procedure will say the colors in the room look brighter um, and there's a kind of vividness that comes through to your point mm -hmm. after they get calm. And I mean, as you know better than me, there's a foveal vision is, mm -hmm. you know, when you're in sort of that chronic threat response mode, you're like focused like right on like what's right in front of your face. Absolutely. Right. And so that's kind of what I think is happening is mm -hmm. we're we're taking people off the hamster wheel and off of foveal vision into um, more lateral um, perception mm -hmm. with all the senses. And when the senses are re-engaged, you're not going to need to go back into that sort of like numbing avoidance, exactly. alcohol exactly. pattern. 
So it makes sense to me logically, but I'm very keen to have this researched and explored, you know, by whoever's willing to do it in the future. So the call is out there, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so that's hot. No, oh, wonderful. Oh, Shona, I, it was so great to have you on my show. I know you have got very soon, you have got another commitment. So therefore, for today, we have to sort of wrap it up. And I'm, I'm, I'm acutely aware that we have used a beautiful amount of your time. And I think this was a wonderful, wonderful interview. I'm very grateful for you, you to share your your passion there, to to see how you tick and to see your own journey of of someone who comes from a background of, of servitude and, and of, of wanting to help others. And yet here you are asking yourself, what can we do better? And new ideas yeah. and and reinventing yourself. So there's a lot of transformation in the last eight years, 10 years uh, in you yourself, a lot of soul searching. And, and I know very much, so my steps to sobriety in my book, that changed a lot in how I actually thought, here you are, you're again uh, putting things down, you're writing things down. So for you guys out there, that's the journaling, that's the actually writing things down, putting things into words and suddenly realizing, wow, that looks rather different. Shona, thank you so much for being on my show. It was an absolute fantastic insight into, into modern treatment options of PTSD and trauma uh, in the setting of the VA. And uh, I will be looking forward to get you back onto my show. There's no way that we can just stop here uh, due to time commitments and not explore so much more because you're a woman, you're a, you're a force of nature when it comes to psychology and insights. Let's let's explore and maybe in the in the next session that we meet, we can talk about transformation and leaving an identity behind and how to do that in a very healthy way to actually grow and rather than than crash and burn that so many of us unfortunately doing. So Shona, Doc Shona Springer, um, check out her website. Uh, it's absolutely amazing work this woman is doing. I'm incredibly grateful for you that you have been on my show. Thank you so much. Thank you again for having me. Cool. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Bye. Dream.